Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. In this edition, we're having a conversation with the director of the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department. We'll talk about this year's unprecedented shutdown of the state park system, when things will get back to normal, and to keep things fun, talk about nine of the most overlooked parks in Oregon. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, David, today we are talking to the head of Oregon State Parks Department, Lisa Sumpton. She's been in charge of the agency managing Oregon's 270 state parks and recreation sites since 2014. So we're talking about many of Oregon's most beloved places from Silver Falls to Smith Rock to the length of the Oregon Coast Beach. It's a big job. Yeah, Lisa is actually the first woman to lead the State Parks Department, an agency that traces its roots all the way back to the 1920s and its first director, Sam Boardman. She's overseeing a time of really unprecedented growth with more people visiting and camping than ever before. Yeah, for years, that was their biggest issue. You know, we'd get together and kind of talk about the issues hitting the state park system, and it was always about this influx of new visitors. In hindsight, it was kind of a nice problem to have because in 2020, things got a lot more difficult. The COVID-19 pandemic brought a complete shutdown of the state park system for the first time ever. Along with that, they had an economic hit that left the agency short-staffed during what turned out to be the busiest summer in its history. Not only that, state parks was also hit by Oregon's historic wildfires, which required evacuating hundreds of people in the middle of the night. Yeah, there are some pretty serious issues to talk about when it came to the state of Oregon state parks in 2020. We did lighten it up a bit at the end by having Zach, Lisa, and longtime state park spokesman Chris Havel each pick their favorite less visited state parks. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And you'll hear about some very cool places that most people miss. But when we sat down with Chris and Lisa, the first thing that I asked them about was how they'd look back on the unprecedented chaos brought by 2020. All right, so we've been having these kind of conversations since 2014, and typically we're talking about a wide-ranging bunch of issues, you know, some crowding at state parks, drone use at Silver Falls, you know, where you could expand camping on the coast. You know, they were big issues, but you could sort of wrap your brain around them. Like, they seemed like, here's what we need to do. This year, you faced a pandemic that required shutting down and then reopening the entire state park system, some pretty major staffing shortages, and a historic summer for people getting outside, and then to top it off, uh, a handful of parks hit by wildfires. So I guess the question is, how are you going to remember 2020 overall? And I mean, what did it teach you guys about this job? Right. How do you remember 2020? Um, I spent most of the week with staff on the central side in the southern southern part of Oregon this week. And it's so funny how when you're in the middle of the crisis, how you how you respond to it. Right. And here two weeks after fires, how all of a sudden as humans, we rationalize that it wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. Right. And and then COVID wasn't that bad. Right. And so it'd be fascinating to look back and see how we remember it and not capturing the essence of what it was like while we were in it. Right. 
because how you feel about it while it's happening versus how you feel about it two weeks later or eight months later is completely different. So how we'll remember this, this is the this is the reset year, right? This is the back to basics. This is the anything we thought we were talking about before that seemed really important. This is back to the, okay, here's the foundation we were talking about. Who are we going to be in 100 years? We know who we're going to be in 100 years now. <laughs> it brings you back to what's really important and that foundation of why we're here and, and what we need to be doing. And so, and it was very evident as we, we managed through the, the pandemic, right? Everyone, the only thing you could do was get outside, yeah. right? And so it's very clear, not only to us, but I think more people that didn't get it really got it this time. So it was, it'll be a very memorable year. <laughs> the biggest one in our history. All right, so I want to spend a good amount of time talking about how we reached this point, but starting in the present right now, there's 18 state parks that are closed either because of COVID, staffing shortages, or wildfires. I know there's some limits on renting yurts and cabins. Uh, A lot of campgrounds don't have showers still. So the big question is, what's the outlook in the short and longer term? Is this you know, something that lasts into fall and winter, or is this a new normal for years to come? Like, what should people kind of expect in the near and long term? That is a great question, Zach. So um, we're happy that we're sitting here today, not a month ago, <laughs> um, because we, we do know through the pandemic that um, revenues, uh, although our park user fees are down, our lottery fees are up. And so we are prepared as of October 1st, we have restored some of the, the field budgets for the parks. And so our goal is to be fully staffed on the field side with all of our seasonals, all of our permanent rangers back on the ground to be ready in March. You'll start seeing the cabins and yurts. We started opening a few this week. You'll start seeing that as they can create that capacity. If things slow down a little bit, you'll start seeing the cabins and yurts come back on. And our intent, depending on what else happens between now and the end of the year, is to have the system ready to be fully receiving all of its visitors by March. Okay, so March of March of next year. March of next year. Okay, so March is going to be the the kind of the 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 restart almost to where people are going to see a pretty normal Oregon State Park system. If there is a thing called normal, <laughs> they will we will definitely be better prepared to do things like showers and mm-hmm. have more facilities available. Maybe even more of our park system available to make sure that we're, we're meeting the need that's out there. Gotcha. Yeah. And be- between January and March, um, we'll have time to experiment with different procedures, mm-hmm. um, making sure that we can we have the supplies and staffing and time to keep showers open and clean. And even for things like yurts and cabins, which we have relatively few in number and they're really high in demand all year long, how can we keep those open in a way that's best for the visitor and best for the facility. And that can mean things like uh, requiring reservations sometimes or requiring a resting period Mm -hmm. between stays for some of those facilities. Those are not things that we've done in the past. So between, you know, that January, March timeframe, you may see some facilities sort of pop open with different procedures just to try things out so that when we hit the full season next year, we've got a good test behind us and are ready to go. Cool. Well, that's good news. Um, In thinking about other places that have challenges facing them, you know, a few parks were hit by wildfires, uh, Collier, and then one of my favorites, North Sanium State Park. What's the plan there? I mean, how do you go about looking at what's there now and then either turning it into a park at some point again? Or, I mean, how do you handle those places that got burned pretty badly? So we're 
looking at those initial disaster assessments and trying to figure out, so what, what exactly is the damage on the ground? How can we get the park system back up and functioning to the best of its ability? And some of them will be slow. I was at Collier this week and just standing there looking at that tree stand and just realizing that it could be 30 to 50 years before that landscape will look the same, no matter what we do. Even if we could get in there and plant tomorrow, it's, it's just going to be a very different landscape than what we're used to. But we'll, we'll do everything we can to get those those campgrounds and those recreation sites back up and functioning as quickly as possible. Yeah, the environment really um, sort of t- determines the pace that you can recover at. On the east side, where the growth rates are much slower, yeah. uh, it takes much longer to recover those landscapes. A place like North San Am, um, I, I would expect, although we don't have a report back from our stewardship team who help us manage natural and cultural resources in the system, what can we expect to see first? You know, because a park isn't a single thing. You know, there's an area to get down to the river. There's a small campground there. uh, There are picnic areas. There's even a cute little trail, right? Um, And what we try to do is figure out which experiences are the most important to bring back first and put the effort into getting those back online sooner. So you would see, like, partial service at a park as we can afford to recover it before you get back to something more like what you were used to before it burned to the ground. You know? Yeah, and speaking for the canyon, we would love a boat ramp, first of all. all right. um, so, you know, just take that under advisement. That's just one citizen. Duly noted. <laughs> I heard him say we. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, I live in the canyon, so I can, you know, the, the, yeah. the fishing culture there. All right, um, but that's a good question. There are places where we might need facilities, and if we're going in and rebuilding anyway that's an opportunity to say well for as long as we're putting money into it uh, what does that look like what kind of service do we need there so i'll I'll put a little check mark next to boat ramp rather than (laughs) thank you it is it is cobble pad which was what at you know was at north sandian before i wanted to ask you about the extra fee that you imposed on people from outside Uh. the state temporarily (laughs) temporarily uh that come to camp here so if you come to camp there's an extra little surcharge right now at least with Oregonians, this is very popular. Uh, we like this a lot. And <laughs> it makes a level of sense since most states do the same thing with fishing licenses. So this isn't out of the ordinary. But first, what prompted the, the extra surcharge and any plans to keep it long term? So that's a, that's a great question, Zach. Um, so with, with uh, 2020, I think that anything is possible. I think Chris said something earlier, like, um, what can we expect next? And it felt like for about... The first four months, it was every hour, what could we expect next? And it was just constant adaptability, right? And so if you remember back in March, right around spring break, we had five counties that over a weekend made the decision to shut down our facilities and have anybody who didn't live there leave the area. So that that was pretty unprecedented to shut down the entire state park system in 48 hours while we were all working remotely from home (laughs) over a weekend. So at the same time, as things started ramping back up and folks started coming back out, all of a sudden we were in this place again that out-of-state visitors were coming pretty rampantly. And those dialogues were starting to come back up because the numbers were starting to look like they could go up and maybe this this would be a way to think about seeing if we could deter people from coming from out-of-state and try to keep some of those smaller communities that were more concerned about their own community well-being and their their own community resources and as chris said earlier not only during covid but during the fires we have gone from just being this this thing about recreation and access to being community engagement and community support we live and work and we are part of the fabric of a community 
And so those dialogues were commitments to our partners to say, if that's becoming a problem, what else can we do to try to deter people from coming into your community to make you feel more vulnerable? Because it's really difficult to close a space to just one or the other, right? And if we have to close it, that means it's closed for everyone. And no one really appreciated that either. And I will say 50-50 was about where we landed publicly with every decision we made. 50 people were totally against it. 50 people were okay with it. <laughs> and this one seemed to be more like 70-30, where it was like, oh, even the out-of-staters, most of them were saying it's that way in every other state, and you're still, you're still a better value, and you're still a better system. But um, we're really committed to if we say something that we're going to do, we follow through with it. So as of December, our intent is to remove the out-of-state fee we can have a much larger dialogue about fees going forward. It created the opportunity to have the dialogue, but I, I don't feel comfortable in the middle of a crisis making a decision that would later look like we did it just to make money because it did not have the effect. <laughs> we were hoping it didn't deter anyone um, and it did bring in additional revenue. So we do thank the out-of-staters for that and we're thankful that the numbers didn't go up, um, but it was just another tool to add to the toolbox to see if we could try to be be more responsible in the middle of a global pandemic. So it will go away assuming the COVID numbers don't go back up and we don't have issues in those communities. December, we'll, we'll go back to where, where we were. Um, all right, so let's jump back in time a little bit and talk about how we got there. So I think this year started off pretty normal. Um, I don't really remember what was going on at that point. Um, but the first Oregon COVID case uh, popped up in late February. And in those early days, did you think it was going to have much impact on state parks? And I ask because I remember writing some of these stories. The early narrative was like the outdoor recreation is that's where it's at. Like that's what we can rely on as indoor places started shutting down. Everyone was going outdoors. So what were you, what were you thinking about how this would impact state parks early on? We pulled together our first emergency team in late February, early March. Uh, and there's a couple of ways that something like this can affect the state park system. Uh, first, uh, I am reliably informed that we employ humans and they have families and they live in communities and they can be affected personally. So first and foremost, we wanna make sure that our staff and our volunteers are safe and that when they need to take care of their families and themselves, that they're able to do that without you know, unduly affecting the ability of the state park system to serve the public. So, so we wanted to make sure that uh, we were able to continue operating even if communities were challenged. So that was like that was like the foundation of the of our emergency team. But very quickly, it moved to there's not a lot that's known about this virus and how it spreads. So while people are saying, yeah, the outdoors are a great place. Um, what does that really mean? <laughs> and what does it mean for things like restrooms and stairways and really narrow trails in some parks where you're not able to provide a lot of distance between people? So staying on top of both what the community needs and the evolving information related to the virus and its spread, um, I don't think we were too early or too late in pulling that emergency team together. And as we ended up seeing, it's not just about how it affects an individual person who happens to be alone in a park. It's about what's happening in the community around a park and what happens when you pile a couple of thousand people in onto the same landscape and how do you inform them so that they can have the best experience possible without endangering anybody else uh, who happens to be there at the same time. 
So it was, uh, you know, we knew it was going to be dramatic. I don't think any of us imagined um, how quickly things would evolve. And I think that's probably the, the, the single largest thing that, uh, that we didn't prepare for. You know, we had a plan to gradually shut down the park system. Uh, and it was uh, originally it was like a 30 day plan. It was like, you know what? That's not aggressive enough. Let's get really aggressive and make a two week plan. And two days later, we closed the entire state park system in 48 hours. <laughs> Let's it like, do it tomorrow. <laughs> whatever you, time you think you have, divide it in half, subtract five, multiply by the square root of pi, and that's the time that you actually have. Um, so, you know, we're fortunate that at that moment in time, we had and continue to have a really strong team able to make decisions quickly and effectively and push back against what would normally be the very methodical bureaucratic approach to taking action on stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of people have mentioned that for them, the pandemic became real when the NBA shut down its season. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They've just mentioned that because it was just it was so unexpected and so, you know, surprising for me. It was it was that weekend. And, you know, coming into the weekend, uh, I think Governor Brown had talked about she had advised people to stay home. But look, it was a beautiful weekend. I think it was a holiday weekend or a spring spring break. break. It was (laughs) it was spring break. And Oregonians do what Oregonians do. They flooded out to the Oregon coast. And that kickstarted a really remarkable series of events. So uh, I don't know, Lisa, can you, from your perspective, take me through that that weekend a little bit? Yeah, that was probably, and, and this is one that I think it's really important to capture that historical event, right? Because I don't think anybody anticipated that. The plea went out to stay home, please, right? And there, there wasn't enough information for the public to recognize how severe things could be, right? And um, and just a lot of the information was changing so quickly. It's like masks, no masks, you know, wash your hands, you know, don't you, all these things that people were like, well, see, they don't, nobody knows, right? Because mm-hmm. there's no playbook. Nobody's ever endured this in our lifetime. And so that, that weekend, everybody, it was almost like the last hurrah. Everybody was like, okay, if this is what's going to happen before we all get sent to our rooms, then we're going, right? <laughs> and so, you know, it, it was Friday, everything seemed okay. Saturday morning, it just started blowing up. And I mean, my phone literally, county commissioners, mayors, you know, all nine cities, all five counties, and just having the dialogue of like, what are you going to do about this? And it was like, so how are we going to get, I mean, at Fort Stevens, there's 5,000 people in one park. And you, you could see the things on social media where like people from Portland were going in and saying, look, we finally found toilet paper. And they were loading their cars and, you know, for the community perspective, they were just like, this is very insensitive and, you know, nobody, nobody cares. And so the, the emotions were high, the patience was low, the fear was high. Um, and so... We just, we talked through it. Um, the, the one thing I will say is working with each and every one of those county commissioners and those mayors, because we've already had really good relationships. It wasn't, they weren't difficult conversations. It was more of a, how can we use the tools we have in the toolbox to do something quickly? Because they felt the need to get people out immediately. Um, they were very, very anxious for their communities. And so we just agreed, go ahead and hold your public meeting, ask us to leave. We've got the team on the ground ready to go. We'll get folks out of there and hopefully it all goes really well and people comply and we're not going to have an issue. And, um, and, and honestly, that weekend probably has made us stronger together as, as a community, as a state, um, to be able to pull all of those leaders together and unify. And, and that decision to close, the, the difficulty we were having that weekend is, do we just close the beach? 
right? And you can't really close the beach. I mean, it sounds really neat, but you cannot really close the beach. And it was like, if we move folks from there, they're going to move into the valley. And then if we move them from the valley, right? So it was like, let's just shut everything down, reset, make sure we know exactly what we're dealing with. How do we want to continue to manage this? How do we want to move forward? Let's just take the reset. And at that point, you know, we also have our staff and our volunteers who are super anxious about what does this mean for me and this many people all in my in my space and what happens if I'm cleaning the restroom and could I could I catch it? I mean, there's just not enough information at that point. So it was a good let's stop, reset, make sure we know what we're doing and make sure everybody, as Chris mentioned earlier, it put us in this place of we're now more about the community health than we are about recreation and and running a state park system, which I think was probably the the biggest pivotal moment over the weekend where it was like, that's okay. We can run a state park system later. Right now it's more important for us to protect the health of all Oregonians. And we weren't sure how the visitors were going to respond because that could have gone either way, you know? (laughs) And the level of understanding and compliance was stunning. Mm -hmm. You know, the only reason we were able to empty the state park system in such a short period of time is due to the cooperation of the people who were visiting. Okay. So just to to get us on the timeline a little bit, we have this weekend. um, And again, for me, I talked to the mayor of Warrenton that night and he just said, hey, we're we're shutting it down. You know, this is a clear and present danger. Uh, We've talked to state parks. They're going to shut it down. And it happened like one. I think you said like 48 hours or something. And, you know, all the other mayors on the Oregon coast eventually joined on to it. All the, you know, city councils passing these emergency ordinances. And then all of a sudden it was almost overnight the Oregon coast is just different place like pin drop yeah and there's hardly anyone out there and it was surprising that that could get pulled off but still on March 23rd um, you you know made the 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 official decision to shut down all, all the Oregon state parks what was that moment like I mean pulling the trigger for the entire system because we're not just talking about the coast here we're talking about eastern Oregon and central Oregon I mean, was it a surreal moment? To, I mean, is there like a red button you push? Like what? It just seems so so strange, I guess. Yeah, I wish there was just a red button, right? So, I mean, Friday night, that, those conversations were very helpful in that dialogue, right? And we were able to move from Friday night to, I think they held their meetings at like noon on Saturday. I mean, it was a very fast, because we were all in unison. Everybody was in total agreement. We literally got everyone on the phone that evening had the conversation and said, yes, we're all in support. And as we talked through it, it was like, if we just do it here, that's going to be a problem. So we need to go across the entire system. Getting that out to the team and having the team come back and concur and prepare and be ready. I mean, we've had to do evacuations. I mean, we've had to get people out of the system. So we, I mean, it's not, it's not an unusual thing for us to do. We've just never done the entire system and tested us to that level before. Thankfully, we weren't as busy on the east side as we were on the coast, and and things weren't you know as as difficult there. But the team knows what to do. We've we've done this before in smaller scale, mm-hmm. and so the fact that we pulled it off in smaller scale, um, I couldn't be more proud of them. I mean, again, with no incident, our visitors were totally compliant. Their volunteers were magnificent. Our employees were incredible. It it will be something that will be remembered in history and. Maybe we can get faster next time. <laughs> there was a little numb shock around the room um, at, uh, at, in that moment, but it was it was very short because I think just out of self protection, you stop thinking about where is this going to go and are we ever going to reopen? Right? Those are the thoughts that sort of go through your mind. Is this the end? Right? Um, you just just you have that in a flash. 
and then you move on and you do your job. And that's what we came out of that room with was we've got a job to do. And frankly, we don't know how many lives we're about to save by making this decision. Uh, Whatever our personal thoughts are and misgivings, it's worth it. And just do your job. And that's the way the team walked out. The hardest part is you always have a finish line. And it was there's no finish line. Like what what once we do this, then then what? It was kinda like, well, we've adapted so much in the last two weeks. Right. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so that that began uh what was really a surreal time, not just for state parks, but for the entire state and especially people who cover Oregon's outdoors, because eventually all the recreation shut down, which again was kind of a logical thing to do because you can't shut down one thing and not the other, or everybody will just go to the other. But it's still, we entered this weird Twilight Zone episode where, I mean, I wrote stories about the the police stopping, like, a guy drifting down the river and, you know, surfers trying to get out there got sighted. And it was just, it was a strange moment because instead of rangers inviting people in, they're right. trying to keep them out. What was that period like for both you and your staff as your mission almost flips on its head? Surreal, right? We haven't we haven't encountered that. We've had you know temporary closures, um, and we know that recreation is is the thing that is probably the healthiest thing to do, especially in a global pandemic. And to being able to have the access to the outdoors, I can't even imagine what the what it felt like for a ranger in that moment, right? Because that's not what you sign up to do. You don't sign up to keep people out of your parks, right? You you want people in, and you want to welcome them, and you want to interpret the, the space, and you want to make the experience great. And all of a sudden. We're in this weird space of keep you out, and then when we're ready to let you back in, it's a come in, but don't come near me. <laughs> and so it's been a very, very interesting time for all of us because it's a very unusual way to do business, right? And and that cooperation with the other recreation providers was absolutely necessary because we've, we've had this conversation before. People don't know the difference. A park is a park is a park. When you're recreating, you're putting money in an envelope regardless if it's a state, county, federal park, they just know they go to a place they love to, to access recreation. And that coordination was necessary so that way we could all shut and, and reopen safely back together and make that experience what they're looking for. Okay, so ultimately parks began this reopening process, uh, eventually in, including the coast, but that extended closure, um, you know, along with other things, brought a pretty big financial hit to the agency. So I've gotten questions about this. Can you explain kind of how the shutdown and all the things were happening uh, hit your budget so hard? Yeah, so we were close for 13 weeks. And and if you think about, so this is that was our prime season. I mean, once spring break hits, that we make most of our money in that three-month window. And so being closed for 13 weeks was significant. And I think what a lot of folks don't understand is we don't receive general fund dollars. So there are zero tax dollars coming into the organization. We're about split half and half our constitutionally dedicated lottery funds. Not once, but twice Oregonians have voted to protect their parks with with lottery funds. And then the other side is primarily park user fees. And so when that, that funding wasn't coming in, right, so here's not only do we shut down the system, we shut down bars and we shut down restaurants and places where people could play video poker and 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 have those lottery opportunities. So all of that was closed at the same time, which I don't think anybody would have ever anticipated that those funding sources could all be cut off. I mean, it was like the faucet went off. <laughs> and it was like, oh, <laughs> thank goodness we had been very prudent and conservative and had a decent ending balance. But it, it translated to about a $22 million shortfall 
which is not insignificant for our organization. It is the most we have ever, ever lost in one, one fell swoop. You know, we, we didn't return almost 371 seasonals. We, we targeted 70 positions for layoffs, which translated to 47 full-time equivalent employees in our supporting functions, natural resources and stewardships, planners, engineers, at our most critical time that we're going to be in recovery and rebuilding, right? So, I mean, they were pretty significant cuts. So there are some parks that we did not open. We consolidated the staff we had to make sure we could have things open. We opened up to the best of our ability, which meant in some places there weren't showers, there weren't facilities available, there weren't cabins and yurts, there weren't interpretive services. And trying to, like, retrain our rangers because... I will say we're, we're the most proud state agency there is. Our employees are the most committed and dedicated, um, and any other agency director can fight with me over that, but it is true. And so just trying to, to lower the, the standard, I think, was probably the hardest part for us, right? Because they want to give the best experience possible, and we had to keep going back and saying, it's okay. It's okay to be C students right now. Just getting access and getting people out there is going to be the best we can do, and and so it... it it's been incredible to, to watch what they've been able to pull off. And it was a really interesting summer, too, because, uh, I mean, Oregonians didn't have much else to do. There Our wasn't busiest visitation yeah. yet. You, you know, you didn't have Little League baseball games. You didn't have, you, you know, didn't the have night concerts. The you didn't have concerts. <laughs> so you have everybody just going outdoors at the same time you have a shortened staff. I mean, how did that look on the ground? Um, what were the challenges there? So, so the the most interesting part, uh, you know, I've been out talking to staff the last few weeks, and um, so I was over at the Cove Palisades on Tuesday, and they said that they have so many new visitors that people would show up because it's the first time they've ever had a camper or an RV, and they would show up and they paid for full hookup, and so they were waiting for like the concierge to come over and hook them up, like full service gas. <laughs> yep, and it was like. You've never done, you've never been here before, have you? <laughs> and so that seems to be the theme. You know, I've been over on the coast, I've been in the valley, I've been on the east side, I've been in the south, and it seems to be overwhelmingly the theme of there are a lot of new people. There were a lot of new visitors that had not actually been in our parks before. Plus, then you had the people who have always been there, right? And so they said that it was just the dynamics of the differences and not being fully staffed to be able to support what what those new visitor experiences were like. So the inexperience and the congestion, I think, played out in a couple of ways um, that required us to adapt. So we have problems with congestion with traffic. We have problems with trash. Uh, we had problems with sort of cleanliness Parking. in the bathrooms <laughs> at a time when we were down about half staff. And when you layer on top of that the inexperience of some of the visitors, that creates safety problems too, where you know people might be spending a little more time outdoors than they figured. Are they to bring enough water? Are they to bring sunscreen or a hat? And normally we're there to help people through that part of their park journey by saying, hey, we noticed seem to be having some trouble. Can I do anything for you? We're not able to do that. And coping with that new role for us, where we're just barely able to keep the doors open and we're not able to do everything for the visitor, meant we had to rely on some, you know, extra signage and extra training and more cooperation with some of our message partners like Travel Oregon and the other recreation agencies to try and smooth some of those bumps out. I don't think it was entirely successful because humans oi you know they're just 
you, know, you, you can put it right in front of them and they're not always going to necessarily see or understand what's expected of them. Uh, so in, in a way, I think every Oregonian who already loves the outdoors is going to be the next open door to the people who haven't had that experience yet. Um, so democratizing sort of the experience of getting new visitors in, I think that's one of the silver linings uh, to this whole thing. Well, let me ask you this. Um, you know, you talked about how things are things are looking good for, for the future and stuff. But um, I mean, are the budgetary issues going to delay anything like campground expansions that we talked about or connecting the Oregon Coast Trail and stuff like that? Like, does that stuff get pushed a little farther down the line or can you get back to some of that stuff, you know? So we, we kind of paused, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and hopefully there's there's patience for that. So we paused a little bit to, to this is a good opportunity to reset, right? Because we were doing a lot of things. I mean, things were going really well and, you know, we weren't, we, we were taking on a lot. So it's it's kind of staff that I've met with in the last couple of weeks keep saying it feels like it's a back to basics. It is just like let's let's have a ground level reset. So we haven't we haven't lost sight of acquisitions of, of parks. We've actually done two acquisitions since COVID happened. We're still talking about how could we do expansions even for next season. So we're just focusing a lot more clarity around what we could do in a shorter amount of time period, the Oregon Coast Trail. I'm we're still meeting regularly and, and hoping that every one of these places, right, and I think the wildfire conversation will even accelerate that. There are places that we can help with that economic recovery and we can provide access in these communities that are really going to need it. So, yeah, it might look a little different than what we had planned, but we're still very focused and committed to, to doing everything we were doing. We're just right. going to have to be a lot more thoughtful and strategic about how and we... It, it might be a little slower. It sure. might be a little slower. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So one of the the harder questions that I got a lot during uh, the shutdown and stuff like that, and then even with the the reopening and stuff, was, you know, was it worth it? And I asked that just because you know numbers eventually like they they were really good, then they went up for a while, and then down, and it's still been a roller coaster. I mean, do you feel like that big moment that did hurt? Like, do you think it was worth it? So you know. I- it would be really neat to be able to look back and say which which way you could or should or might have gone. And I still don't know that we know enough to know enough, right? And so through the entire process, I've been talking to my brothers and sisters across the country that run other state park systems, and every one of us handled it differently. Some, some stayed open the entire time and were welcoming people in and acted as if it didn't matter. Others were completely shut down. New Mexico opened up camping to their own residents for the first time on October 1st because they didn't know how to keep out-of-staters out, so they just closed the entire system down. So they have been closed for like seven months. And I'm like, I'm glad we didn't do that, <laughs> right? So, I mean, I don't, I, I have no regrets for how we handled it. It seemed like the right thing to do, and I think if we had it in front of us again, I, I wouldn't change any of it, actually. So just coming, not that COVID has ended by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, as as you guys do transition back to something resembling the normal uh, state park system. I mean, what do you want them to know about about COVID and how you're handling it? Like, what is that going to look like in either when you reopen in March or just over the next few months? Yeah. So we'll we'll, we'll stay open. <laughs> we're not we're not closed. And so I think you know the fires are probably a good reminder. I think folks got very relaxed. Right. The fires happened. It puts this this immediate sense of life safety in front of you and it's easy to say well you know we're dealing with fires and my family was evacuated or whatever and so people's guards went down 
And um, we made it all the way through seven months with not one employee positive test. And we get to fires and we had one. It was contained to the one, thankfully, because the procedures we have in place are working. And so we're going to continue with those procedures. But it's a good reminder that COVID is still among us. It has not gone anywhere. And so as visitors are still coming back to us, we're going to continue with the procedures we have in place. We may need to ramp them back up. I don't know what will happen when we go into flu season. There's still a lot of things unknown here. And so as things adapt, we'll adapt with it. But it's just a good reminder for everybody that it's not over and we need to continue to take it seriously. Yeah. All right, so there's no great segue for this other than just moving from one kind of slow-moving disaster to a much faster one. Um, Obviously, some of Oregon State Parks were hit by wildfires. First of all, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the evacuation of, like, Detroit Lake and North Sanium, some of the places that, I mean, it was a holiday weekend when those came through. I mean, were you happy with the way people were able to get out? I didn't hear any any major issues, but can you talk about that a little bit? So um, we have emergency procedures for all of the major parks, especially the ones where people spending the night. And uh, none of those work without the dedication of staff to do the right thing at the right moment. One of the things that happened with these fires was speed. I mean, it was you, you went from level zero to level three at 4 a.m. in the morning, and the only way that works and the only way that you save people's lives is by having staff who are ready to act. And uh, that happened in these cases. Silver Falls emptied, Detroit emptied, North San Am emptied, uh, and every other park uh, that was in harm's way uh, was evacuated uh, safely. There was property left behind in some cases, and that's that. That's that awareness that you just can't write down in a manual and expect is going to work. It's like if you need to leave that behind, leave it behind. You have two minutes, right? And I, I think it was the staff who were just ready to respond instantly is what made it work. Panic. Yes, um, but it's sort of a, I don't, is there an educated panic? It, that kind of need for urgency, that's really important. And all of this in the midst of staff who are helping evacuate those parks are personally involved. Many of them live near these parks. They're, you know, they don't know if their home is still standing, but they're still doing their job to get people out. You know, it. you, you never want to end up here, but it does warm your heart a little bit to know that people are looking out for each other and realize what's important in the moment that it happens. So um, are we as prepared as we need to be in every single park? Mm, I'd say we're maybe 80% of the way there to be ready for something like this. But my the thing I've been trying to avoid saying, you know, what could happen? Um, <laughs> we live with tsunami danger. We live with volcano danger no. and floods and fires. No, no, a, none of those things are going to happen in the next three months. I can get what could happen. You know, it just you don't worry about things like that. Um, but you do worry about them uh, with the training and the awareness of staff to, to do their job uh, to the best of their ability. So uh, I think we came through it um, uh, pretty darn well. That doesn't take away from the loss that people have suffered. And we need to be there now asking the question, what can we do for you as a community to help you recover? As we're looking at the investments that we need to make in parks to get them uh, back up operating and contributing to the community, 
what each region needs is going to be a part of that. It's not just about fulfilling the recreation needs. It's about making sure that the communities are made whole. So, you know, we still have, a, I think, a pretty steep path in front of us uh, with uncertain funding um, to get through this. Uh, but we've got, the, I think, the right team in place and the right connections to the communities to help us through it. All right, now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Following message is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council. Did you know that outdoor recreation is the second largest source of revenue for the U.S. Forest Service? Did you know that timber is the first? Renewable forest products from federal lands generates millions of dollars to maintain forest roads, as well as campgrounds and many other recreational amenities. Forest management activities such as thinning keep our public lands resilient and accessible to all. AFRC stands for Sustainable Forests and Healthy Communities. Learn more at amforest.org. So this was a kind of a serious conversation, despite all the laughing, <laughs> um, with you know a lot of important stuff that Oregonians want to know about. But this podcast is typically more of a celebration of outdoor places we love in the state. So. In that spirit, uh, Lisa, Chris, and I are going to draft our favorite lesser-known state parks. We are basically building a fantasy football team here of less-visited parks and talking about why we like them so much, so that's the idea. We do this on our podcast. It's just a fun way of talking about places. Lisa, I'm going to let you go first. What is in the draft of lesser-known Oregon state parks? What is, uh, what is your first selection? Oh my gosh, my first selection would be Minum. Why? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have said it like Chris is like, don't say it out loud because everyone's going to love it. Minum State Recreation Area. Yeah, Minum Minum is probably, it's got to be up there for me. Okay, what makes it stick out? Why, why pick that one? Have you been there? Nope. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a very quaint, small recreation site right on the river. And it's, it's just a different experience than we have in most of our other state parks. And so for me, it's it's a much quieter sanctuary. Gotcha. And that's the Grand Ronde River, right? Yep. It's right mm-hmm. near the confluence of the Grand Ronde and the Minam River. It's about 45 minutes from Wallawa Lake on the way to Wallawa Lake. It's a great spot to stop. Okay. Is it a or sp- stay there and visit Wallawa Lake. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> but Chris is going to hate that because he won't be alone Yes, now. right. <laughs> it's one of my tent camp spots. There's a little primitive tent camp there. No showers, just a vault restroom. and It's very popular during hunting yeah, season. <laughs> feral apple trees along the trail down as you're walking down uh, the river. Great fly fishing up there as well. There's almost always a bear right near the yep. camp campsites too. <laughs> Is that close to the put-in for the Grand Ronde float? Like, it is. It is. It yeah. is. Yep. That's on part the other, of the park. Yeah. On the other side, yep. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Well, Chris, what we're going to do three rounds here, I should have mentioned. What is your first round selection, Chris? Yeah. So uh, while I try to emphasize Eastern Oregon parks as well, just to keep people from hammering the coast, this is my first pick. It needs to be a coast park. So I'm going to go <laughs> Black Lock Point, Flores Lake State Natural Area. Um as, Wild strawberries. Yes. Underappreciated, uh, beautiful, strange, twisted, much like many of the people that I know. So. <laughs> I think you might be talking about you and Isaac, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a place that it's almost, it's kind of 
tucked between like the northern coast and the southern like it's neither one what what makes it stick out like describe it just a little bit so uh first you're not going to see a sign to black lock point for the trailhead off of the highway so um, i pick it because it's a stealth park the locals know it and it doesn't take much work for you to find it uh there there are a couple of things that sort of elevate it in my mind first it's the home to the pygmy forest and i just like saying the words pygmy forest uh you should try it it's like pygmy goats uh, so uh yes in a way if goats grew very slowly in poor clay soils because of trapped moisture which i think is my goat experience yes, as well yes. uh, so yeah um so endangered plants rare animals trails that not have just sort of, of been built up not a lot of people lead you to in my the view, view. <laughs> one of the most stunning views in and i'm including sam boardman in that which is hard to beat mm -hmm. of the the south coast which is still where my heart lives um while the north coast no shade to the north coast but Yes, got people. And uh, on the south coast, uh, Black Lock Point, Flores Lake State Natural Area, Curry County is just, you know, it's a little bit of heaven down there. So I'm putting that first. Cool. All right. So my first pick, I'm going to go with Golden and Silver Falls. Nice. It's one of my favorite because. That's my second pick. It, <laughs> it always confuses people when you talk about it or write about it. They will, I'll get emails like correcting me and saying like, wait, Silver Falls yeah. is right. this one over here. And I'm like, no, this is a fun little like patch of old, used to be like a, a timber area. It used to be, I think you bought it from a timber company. Yep. And there's an old timber road that leads up out of the park too. Yeah. And you get there and just nothing really prepares you for the power of those waterfalls, especially in the middle of like December or January. They're as good as anything at the more famous Silver Falls State Park or anything statewide. And they're or just- Or is it Silver Falls or Silver Creek? Uh -oh. <laughs> you don't get that either. <laughs> you're, you're gonna open up just such a can of worms. <laughs> But it's also great for kids. I brought both girls when they were very small there and the trails are, are quick and easy, but it's still fun. There's little places in the creek to play with. So when you talk about like a really remote little patch of heaven, oh, um, it's beautiful. Golden and Silver Falls is, is definitely gonna be my first pick. So we are on to the second round. Lisa, what is your, what is your second pick? Uh, well, you took my second pick. So I guess I'm gonna have to go with Munson Falls. Um, because it's so easy to access and, and you don't you, you go down that little road and you're thinking what could possibly be here right here at the end and I think just about anybody could get there it's pretty accessible and it's it's a pretty special little spot that I don't think most people pull off at either mm -hmm. and it, it, it's it's a great stopping point if you just want to get out and stretch even it's it's a great little space yeah. there and so it's right along highway 101 in Tillamook County mm -hmm. um, just south how, of Tillamook. how yeah. far is it from Cape Lookout it's pretty close to Cape Lookout isn't it well, as the crow flies, it's close, but it does minutes. take a bit of a drive uh, to get there because of the route that you have to take. So, yeah, it's in that 25-minute range, but Almost easy. every time I go up to a Salmonberry meeting, it's my stopping point just to breathe before I go into the meeting. And it's a real short little trail. You kind of Tiny. follow the creek, and then you get to the viewpoint. It's right there. Yeah. 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 And the view is a little challenging there, so I think it's, it's worth the effort, and you sort of get little hints of the waterfall uh, through the view. At, you can hear it as you're going up. Mm -hmm. And salmon spawn in that creek too, don't they? I did not I, know that. I don't know. We have pictures of nice. salmon spawning there. Really? Uh, I just, yeah, I remember 
writing about it briefly at one point, and I looked in our archive, and there was pictures of salmon's spawning. Oh, sweet. Learned something new. Nice. Um, All right, Chris, what is your second pick? So I'm moving inland to Thompson's Mills, uh, down near the town of Shedd, south of Albany. Um, So I'm going from Blacklock, which is pretty much an all-natural experience, to Thompson's Mills, which is all-cultural experience. So it's the one of the oldest water-powered flour mills still surviving in the state, which is saying something given the environment down there where it's all wet and things fall apart pretty quickly. But I just like standing in a building uh, that has hand-hewn beams that date back to the Lincoln presidency, you know? <laughs> that, that there's something moving about uh, sort of being in a place that reminds you of that part of both national and Oregon history. And it's also an opportunity to reflect on the people who, uh, you know, were here before settlers moved in from the East Coast. Uh, so you, you you just get a lot of views of the Oregon landscape at a park like that. Yeah, we we were down there not that long ago, both me and David. And when you walk in there, it's you really feel like you have traveled back in time a couple hundred years. Like it captures that authentic feel really well because I guess it is authentic. Very. Um, <laughs> there was some work that was getting done there when we were there. Like there was some renovations, I think. Yeah, we've been doing work to stabilize the structure once again because everything that humans build wants to fall down. That's just <laughs> sort of the way it works. Uh, so, yes, uh, restorations, um, concrete work. Uh, I think there was some HVAC and fire suppression work um, at one point. I don't know how recent that is. Uh, and just keeping up with the whitewashing and the painting uh, is a constant. We have reconnected the river system there so that the river no longer, the Kalapuya no longer flows through the, the mill like it used to because it was diverted to do yeah, that. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's now a standing pool that we can refill and use to charge the mill when we want to do a demonstration or something like that. But And, and once again, you, you get all of that story when you're there at the park. It's, it's a small patch. Um, you know, It's not a big natural park. It's just a big cultural park. Yeah. All right. So my second pick, going to go with a little bit of a random one. I don't know if it's necessarily lesser known, but it's uh, Tuvel State Recreation Site down in Southern Oregon. So when I lived down there, that was just at the beginning of my journalism career, and I had very little to do, no girlfriend or hope of ever finding one. And so that's how I became an outdoor reporter is because I was just going outdoors all the time. And steelhead are notoriously difficult fish to catch especially on a fly rod, but it was my ambition. I was going to catch a steelhead on a fly rod, and Tuvel is where I did it. Um, wow. And that was the place where I did the most fly fishing. And it's just, it's real easy. You just It's right off a of main road, it's and you, you just get down there, but it has great access to the Rogue River. Yeah. And so it's always has a special place in my heart. I never camped there or did the boat tours or anything. Yeah, it was no just there, drove down there, parked, and then walked along the Rogue River, and actually caught some steelhead on a fly rod. Nice. I always liked it. It was always like a comfortable, it's one of my favorite like parks, like not all parks have to be Silver Falls-esque in grandeur. They can just kind of be close to where you are and provide something, and I always felt that way about Tuvel. All right, so moving into the third third round. This is uh, your last pick, Lisa. What Don't are pick you gonna the go with that I have in my head? I know <laughs> you guys are. You, yep. He already took one of mine. So, um, so another one. I don't know that it's a, a less popular because I think it's gaining popularity. But if folks have not been to Kamwa Chung, yes. okay. Kamwa Chung has to be 
I think every Oregonian needs. I mean, just the history and the culture that is in that space. And I remember when I first started with Parks and we had a grant to do a um, to do an audio interpretation of Kim Chung and I was I was testifying in front of the legislative body to explain like why we needed the money to do this thing and I mean if you have never been there you cannot even experience because it's such a small space but the amount of history and culture and the intactness of that that museum is just absolutely incredible and what that means to the Chinese community and culture in Oregon um, is just one of those places that is really really cool and special and it's gaining popularity internationally. I mean, our international visitors, I mean, we've had over, I think, 30 countries, and it's, it's gained a lot of popularity because it is the most intact Chinese history. Well, so just give us like a little re- Reader's Digest version of exactly where it is and kind of when you go there, like what, what do you see and do? So um, over in John Day, there's mm-hmm. this little, little tiny house in a park setting next to a city park, next to a city pool. There's this little tiny house, and it is tiny. <laughs> and that the building was intact and sat there vacant for 25 years. Yep. Um, and like, like almost like a tomb. It was just totally intact. And when we opened it back up, everything was there fully in place. So you can, you can, especially with the audio tour, you can literally hear what you would interpret Doc Hay's voice and kind of like the feel of walking in and having some traditional Chinese medicine. And mm-hmm. you see little, all these little tinctures and just different, different unique ways of thinking. Yeah, about. that's a beautiful choice. So that park um, is the site of a Chinese business and herbalist shop from the 1800s. That was the center of the Chinese community. There were a lot of Chinese immigrants brought to Oregon to work uh, in mines and in railroads and in other development projects. They weren't welcome to live here. Um, but we certainly, uh, as Oregonians, were trying to make the most of their uh, labor and industriousness and this having a separate place wherever the Chinese were present were basically a, a cultural touch point for them and a place for them to go and feel comfortable that's those that's the sort of thing that uh, Kam Wah Chung became thanks to a businessman and an herbalist uh, who, who moved in uh, from China to open that up and they ran it it ran continuously as a business to the 1940s when the doctor died, and when he did, they just closed up the building, and it sat there neglected until the 70s, when the city said, "Gosh, what is that building in the middle of our park next to the pool?" <laughs> what are we gonna do with that? <laughs> uh, and nobody really knew. There weren't good records. They opened it up, and they found, in essence, a time capsule of the Chinese experience in Central Oregon, with all of the herbalists and the goods and the records and the life of a person living under those conditions just sort of per- perfectly preserved in, in place, especially in Eastern Oregon where things are drier and a little more, you know, the decay doesn't happen like it does here on the west side. Uh, and that became a state park shortly thereafter because the city was like, there seems to be a need to steward this, you know, to present that story back to, uh, to Oregon and state parks were the first thing that came to mind for them. Wow, that is cool. I haven't been out to it, so I'll have to... You have to take the girls. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, we love the John Day area, so that'll be, yep. that'll be on the And over time, they became part of the community, and the doctor is buried there at the local cemetery. So when you go visit Kam Wah Chung, the home site, make some extra time and go out to the cemetery as well. Really advise that. For sure. All right, Chris, your third 
And final pick. Fort Rock. Oh, nice. I was terrified you were going to pick Fort Rock. <laughs> I love Fort so Rock. I, didn't, I, I had an alternative tub springs um, <laughs> with one B, not two. Uh, but Fort Rock, uh, is. I'm going to make that pick. Uh, the geology is stunning. This is uh, a volcano remnant uh, in the Christmas Valley, so in the Lapine south of Bend area. Uh, and it was a mainly submerged volcano. So as it erupted, it was surrounded by a shallow sea. And uh, the way that affects the molten rock that comes up out of the ground, it's like looking at a melted candy bar. Uh, and uh, it's just stunning to look at. Um, uh, the volcanic crater eroded on one side uh, due to wave action from the shallow sea so it's a horseshoe shaped uh, crater you can get in it's not a difficult walk unless you want to make it want to walk all around the <laughs> way around the outside which you know uh, you can do you're going to see wildfires wildfires look at me wildflowers <laughs> and bird life and insects that you just don't see here on the west side and a short distance away in the summer as Fort Rock Cave. I'm not going to tell you where. I don't know if it's like, if that counts as part of, because it's all treated as the same park, but they're separate but it's properties. Totally different so I'm going to count that as like one pick okay. because the Fort Rock Cave is the site is where cool. uh, woven sandals were right. found. That's yes. right. The 10,000 years. Uh, that yeah. were, were dated mm -hmm. back. And I'm going to push that back to maybe thirteen or 14,000 years at the time. They were one of the oldest relics found uh, that signified human habitation uh, in North America. Yeah, I mentioned a shallow sea in that area, and uh, the uh, Native American presence um, adapted to the sort of the mushy ground by weaving sandals together out of cedar bark. And there was a collection of about 20 pair <laughs> or so, um, memory serves, found in this cave. Uh, and when they dated them and realized what they had, it became sort of a worldwide sensation. It really changed the clock that people think of human habitation in North America. There have been other older finds found since then, but Fort Rock was the first one that really set that, that clock back. Uh, so it's a tremendous experience, both geologically and uh, other natural perspectives, and also the cultural perspective is there for me. The thing that sticks out to me about that area is you walk inside it, and it feels like you're in like a coliseum because it really yes. surrounds yeah, yeah. you. It's really impressive. Um, but there's also, it makes a great stop on a road trip of that area. Um, the time I stopped there, I went and snowshoed up to Hager Mountain Lookout, yeah, nice. which is not far away. And it's one of the best experiences you can have in Oregon is snowshoeing yep. to the top of a mountain. And then you get to, you know, split your firewood and hang out in a little <laughs> fire lookout. Yeah. I'm not kidding. It just takes you back to like, you feel like you're in the 1930s, you know. Yeah. Do you go to back, Crack in the Ground as well when you were there? Crack in the Ground is also uh, also close, which is literally a crack deep in the That's ground. It's it, exactly it literally. Just, it describes it perfectly. <laughs> yep. And if you ever, I can't come up with a name off the top of my head, but there's a little restaurant on the road out there that's super famous for having it's a cowboy, cowboy, dinner. cowboy yes, the dinner. cowboy dinner place yep. you have to call in in advance and tell them you're coming yeah. and you eat for like and 10 people with one meal yeah and it's the largest most delicious steak you will ever have in your life and so you, well, especially if you snowshoot all yep. the way back down right. you've earned it and so you start off with a snowshoe trip you come down and get the amazing dinner and then uh, Summer Lake Hot Springs not too far oh, yeah. away so yeah. you soak there and you're feeling really good and on the way back you stop at Fort Rock and crack in the ground and that is a really really good like two to four day 
yeah. uh, road trip. Um, okay, so this is gonna be my last pick and I'm gonna do my best to pronounce this correctly. I think I can do it because we did this on a former podcast. Iwa Timalakin. Iwi Timalakin? You're very close. Yes, you're very close. This is a, a very small little park that's right next to Wallawa Lake. Um, and the thing I like so much about it is, again, I have little kids and it's just like it's a place to relax. Like that area gets pretty crowded during during peak season, but you can stop here and do this little hike. It's very peaceful. You got the Wallawa Mountains, you know, 9,000, 10,000 feet rising right overhead. And you're just strolling through a pasture. Um, there's fun things for the kids to stop and look at, little creekside stuff where they can splash around in. And it's just this nice little peaceful holiday within a vacation. And yeah, it's a pretty new one too. It's it is one of the more recent parks that we opened up during our park of year phase when we were opening up a new park uh, every year. And I think it was years ago. Yeah, I, mean, I want to say it was 2010 or 2011, something like that. Um, when we opened that one up and one of the and I thank you so much for that park because it it's a, a good reminder that, you know, especially the uh, tribal peoples of the state are not just in our history. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 they're a member of the community. They're here. They're vibrant. They're alive. It's not just a oh, look at the pretty pictures on the wall. Um, and yet you really get a lot from that park about that experience. The interpretive experience is is powerful. I mean, you know, when you want to understand that area's history, it's a good place to go. Not only because from reading it, but you can but also see it. you can see it, and then you can walk just down the road. Like what we did is combine it that hike, and then you just continue the down Chief the road Joseph. to the old Chief Joseph yeah. uh, grave, and you get you feel the history there um, in a way that you know if you're just at the state park. There's a lot going on, you know, right. there's trams to climb and back yeah. you know yeah. backcountry right. trips to plan and all that stuff. But this area kind of centers you in this place so nice well that is all the time we have left i appreciate you guys talking through you know the importance of oregon state parks what was a really challenging year and then also taking some time to sort of celebrate what makes the park system so special and fun so appreciate you being here nice sweet thank you thanks for having us well that's about all the time we have for left on this explore oregon podcast if you like what you heard check out old episodes at statesmanjournal.com slash explore You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. And a couple of other places where you get your podcasts. All over the place. We'd like to thank our sponsor, the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for the environment, for the economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org.